The word of the Lord from Acts 26, 9 through 23. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Thank you, Tess. Morning, everybody. I'm thankful to be with you this morning. It's good to see you all out there on this Opportunity, to kind of reflect back and look forward, right, right on the cusp of this, of this new year, and uh, it's a joy to be with you as we see things unfold. Most of you know that my wife Laura and I have been have returned to ministry in Costa Rica since late last summer, and uh, we've been ministering at a seminary there. And I just want to say to all of you that we're really, really thankful for the way things we ha- that have gone. We just, you've, so many of you have supported us with your friendships and with your prayers and with your words of encouragement, with your financial support, and we're just really thankful. It's, uh, we're working with students that are just on fire for the Lord and are seeking the word to equip them to go to the far corners of the world and to the, some of the darkest places in their own countries. And uh, it's just a, it's a very unique opportunity for us, and we're just uh, deeply thankful that you can be part of that team with us. As a part of all that, this last semester I taught a class on the book of Acts, 
as you know, it tells the story of the birth of the church and the first uh, 20 or 30 years of the, of the, of the growth of the church. Um, one thing in particular, as I taught through it, read through it again, studied it again carefully, caught me very personally. And that was seeing Paul in a new light, or maybe a better said, in a clearer, fuller light. There was a process there for me because at first I just was kind of floored by Paul's commitment and perseverance. I mean, to trace the hundreds of miles he walked, dangerous, difficult roads, the, the getting kicked out of cities, getting beaten and lashed and left for dead and shipwrecked, and he would just get up and keep going. I was, frankly, I was intimidated by his determination and faith and by the smallness of mine in comparison. But as I studied this a little bit more, I, I, um, I realized that if I was able to talk to Paul about this, I think he would have corrected me. If I could talk to Paul and tell him how much his story had convicted me, how much his story had inspired me, I think he would say something like, sorry, Doug, you're mistaken. It isn't my story. It's God's story. And you are as much a part of that story as I am. That's just what Paul always emphasized. That it was Christ's work that mattered, not his own. And so I'm coming to see more clearly that this is where these stories intersect Paul's and Jesus and yours and mine. And if it's God is at work, if it's God who is at work, and, and the book of Acts really could just as easily and maybe more appropriately be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit than Acts of the Apostles, right? This is God's story as he carries his church forward. And if that's true, all the things that were valid and available to Paul are the same ones that are valid and available to you and me today. So what I, what, what I want to talk to you about today is the conversion of Paul, his story, as it's told, as Tess was reading in Acts 26. Um, Luke felt this thing was so important, this story was so important, he repeated it three different times in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, in chapter 21, and here in chapter 26. The, the overlap of details is slightly different in each case, but it's clear that Luke thought this thing was really worth focusing on in, a, in an intense way. And over the course of history, a lot of people have found this story to be one of those which draws them to Christ or which brings them to a place where they can place faith in Christ. One of them I read about recently is a man named Tom Rudelius. He is one of the uh, kind of rising stars in the field of physics. And he's a professor now in uh, one of the... the uh, on one of the big East Coast universities. I can't remember which one right now. But he tells the story of his conversion. He was raised in an atheistic family. His twin brother became a Christian first, and he was just afraid of, you know, becoming one of that... Who's that guy in the... Oh, no, I'm going to forget the name now. I did forget the name. Never mind. Anyway, he tells this part of his conversion as this. Ned Flanders in... The Simpsons, that's it. I've got it. Very good. Who was just kind of a ridiculous Christian, right? Um... But he tells this of his conversion. He says, I remember especially thinking that the conversion of Paul, that that at the very least had to keep me from dismissing the evidence for Christianity and the evidence for the resurrection. The idea of some skeptic or some opponent of the faith being converted in such a strange way by itself was enough to say, for me to say that, well, there's something serious going on here. So as we dig in, let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for taking Paul on this journey because now it can be part of our journey. And what you promised to Paul, you promised to us because you're the same God. And open our hearts so that we can see what you want us to see and change our wills so that we follow where you lead us. 
Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share your word today. Take hold of us, please, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of the setting where Paul is speaking in this passage. Uh, He has been in prison for two years in Caesarea, a coastal town about 35 miles from Jerusalem, uh, under under arrest there, chained to a Roman guard, and... uh, He's there for, the, for illegitimate reasons. He was, they, were, they accused him, the Jews accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which he did not do. Nonetheless, he was accused and imprisoned, and a couple of the governors, Felix and Festus, didn't want anything to do with it, so they just left him there. <laughs> they kind of washed their hands of it, didn't turn him loose. They just left him in jail. He ultimately appeals. He's headed to Rome, but he has this chance to tell his story to the visiting king of Judea, King Agrippa, and that's who he's testifying before now. This uh, King Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He is the son of the Herod who interviewed Jesus just before the crucifixion and who uh, martyred James the disciple in chapter 12 of Acts. And now this is the son. And so this is not a real, you know, not a real safe family to be sharing the good news with, obviously. Um, but that's who, that's who the king is in this reference. Now I want us to think for just a minute about Paul's background. Everything on his resume says elite. <laughs> okay, he is from the tribe of Benjamin, which that doesn't mean much to us. But in that day, it was, they were a very respected tribe because only two tribes stayed with the Davidic kings when the tribe split after Solomon, when the, when the kingdom divided in the time of Solomon, after the time of Solomon. Only the Benjamites in the tribe of Judah stayed with the Davidic kings, and they enjoyed some status in Paul's time because of that. Not only that, Paul was named after the first king of Israel who was part of the Benjamin tribe. That was Saul. Now we're asking, well, was it Saul or is Paul? Which is it? Get your, get your story straight, Gamble. Let me, let me see if I can handle that just a little bit. This is not a case of Abraham, Abram becoming Abraham. This is not a case of Simon becoming Peter when they come to know the Lord. This is simply a case of Paul's lineage. He was born in a Roman capital of Tarsus, southern Turkey, very important, real important city, to a Roman citizen. So Paul is a Roman citizen. He was, so he had a Roman identity, and he had a Hebrew identity. So it wasn't unusual for somebody in that situation that day to have two names, a Hebrew name and a Roman name. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Roman name. And so it depends on who he's working with, the name he would use. If he's working with Romans, he's Paul. If he's working with Jews or Hebrews, he's, he's Saul. Nothing more than that. But that's part of his pedigree is he has this coveted Roman citizenship from an important city, and he's a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, right? Expert in the word of God and how it is to be lived out among the Jewish people. And he got that credential from Gamaliel, one of the most celebrated, important rabbis of the day. Maybe the rough equivalent is he's graduated from Harvard Law School or he studied under one of the Supreme Court justices. His resume is just glowing. Paul's is, right? So he's from this distinguished background, best academic training, already a leader. He's from an important city with a, with a coveted citizenship. And not only that, he's got this trajectory. But as we open up in verse 9, we see that he's not going to rest on those lures. He's out to prove himself. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked people up there. He tells the story. He's locking them up. He's persecuting them. He's going all the way to chasing them down in Damascus. Uh, Rod, you know this better than I do. I think that's 130 miles away, something like that. It's a long ways away. That shows the level of his animosity towards the Christians, right? 
I think there's a couple of things to note here in that little passage. One of them is that Paul says he opposes opposed the name of Jesus. There was something personal about Jesus that bugged him, that prompted this ire in him. There was something about him, not just these followers of, of Jesus' way, but about Jesus personally. Secondly, notice that he was convinced about what he was doing. He was sincere. He believed in what he did. Now, sincerity is not a measure of anything, really. It's not the measure of the rightness of anything. You may have heard it said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's baloney, that's malarkey, that's poppycock, however you want to call it. Okay? Truth exists a part of whether we believe it or not. The only question is, are our beliefs in line with the truth, right? This whole idea that truth depends on what you believe, let's, let's just erase that. That's not true. It's not the case. But Paul was convinced, but he is walking in darkness right now. He thinks he th- sees things very clearly. And so he is willing to chase Christians down, throw them in jail, participate in their executions, right? Lastly, look at that phrase in verse 11. Raging fury, he says he had. In one of the earlier accounts, it says that he was like a wild animal. It's over the top. The word here really just means he's, it's over the top. It's, it's too much. There's a venom in his anger. He doesn't just disagree with the Christian way. There's something darker, meaner there. Why is it that he's so angry? Years ago, Ray Steadman taught a few of us that we were sitting in a room one time and he said, threatened people are threatening. I think that's what's going on with Paul. He was intelligent enough to realize that if Jesus were the Messiah, that if he did rise from the dead, then his own Paul's own prestige, his position, and his authority were all threatened. Not only that, he was supposed to be an expert in the Old Testament. And if Jesus is the Messiah, he's missed the point of the whole Testament. That's kind of embarrassing for a Pharisee, right? You're not supposed to miss the point of the book you have the Ph.D. in. And so he fights it. He fights it. Now, it's not true in every case, but I think in many cases, the kind of anger that you and I struggle with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is something the same as to what Paul is struggling with here. There's something we want or something we think we need to have or something we like, or something we had planned on, and suddenly it becomes threatened. And so we become threatening. The fangs come out. The anger flashes. Or maybe, maybe your anger is different and you go into the Cold War kind of thing where you shut down emotionally and shut people out. Either way, it's a response to this feeling of being threatened. And at the root of that is an insecurity and a selfishness. It's a lack of faith in God and the fact that he will provide what we need. The cure for that insecurity, the cure for that selfishness has only one true remedy. It's trusting in God that he's in control, that he is good, and that his way is the best way. James tells us that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So when we find that anger rising, when I find that anger rising, when I handle it good ways, I ask this question to myself. What am I not trusting God for here? What am I thinking I have to have above all else that I have to lose my temper, that I have to flash out at somebody or treat somebody poorly? Can't I trust God for that thing? God gave his son for me. God is for me. I think I can trust him with this situation. 
Now let's look at what Jesus does with Paul on that road to Damascus. Look at verses 12 and 13. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority uh, and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. It was midday in the Middle East. That's a bright sun. Not nearly as bright as, as the Lord Jesus, right? We read in Revelation that in the new Jerusalem, there won't be a sun and a moon. The light will come from God himself. So what Paul sees here, what he meets here, is the one who is the light of the world, whose light is brighter. The sun is, you know, just a light switch for God. God's a lot brighter than that, right? And there's a sense of irony in this whole thing because in the other accounts, we learn that this light blinds Paul, right? It takes two or three, you know, three days before the scales fall off his eyes to be healed of his blindness. This guy who thinks he is the, has the eyesight for the people to tell them the truth, what's good, bad, which way to go. Now he's blind. So what's God doing? He's clearly showing them, Paul, you don't see things as clearly as you think you do. You're actually blind. And you need to have your eyes opened by me. In the next verse, it's an interesting thing. It also says that, that they were knocked to the ground. Uh, if you could show that first uh, slide, please. In the later Middle Ages, there were lots of paintings of this scene. And many of them pictured Paul getting knocked off a horse. We don't know if Paul was on a horse or not. Kind of dramatic this way, though, right? Um, it looked, it's good for art, artwork, anyway. But the point is the same. He's blinded. He's knocked to the ground. What is God doing? He's humbling this man, right? He is putting him on the ground. That hurts when God treats our pride. It stings. It's a, it's a painful surgery. But pride is a cruel taskmaster, guys. It demands that we carefully protect our image and carefully make sure that everybody talks to us the way they should talk to us, everybody talks about us the way that we want them to talk about us. You're constantly trying to put out fires because you're worried about this thing, right? Um, pride makes us critical of others because it has to protect a positive, elevated view of ourselves. Pride makes us take ourselves too seriously and others not seriously enough. Pride renders us unable to laugh at ourselves, and that's a tragedy, no doubt about it. I got my own small dose of humble pie this Christmas. We, well, there's always some game that we sort of go crazy on during Christmas. This year it's this thing called Nerts, where it's a bad name anyway, but, but there's six or eight of us sitting around the table. We've got eight different decks of cards. Cards are flying everywhere. It's kind of a speed kind of a game, you know. And to win, you've got to get 50 or 60 or sometimes 100 points. In the last game that I played in, Ellie, Ellie won, and she had 73 points. And do you know how many I had? Three. I wish I could win the game, but I can't, right? Sometimes it's good to get knocked off your horse. It's good for us. And that's what God is doing to Paul here. Verses 14 and 15, uh, Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine this scene here? This light brighter than the sun knocks them to the ground, and now there's a voice, and it carries your name? It's saying your name? You talk about personal. I mean, it's one thing to hear, will the owner of vehicle license plate 1A 4367 please move your car? It's blocking the exit. It's another to say, Rod, you parked your car bad. Go move it, will you please? You know, it's personal then. Whoa, whoa. 
right? But what's going on? This is a relationship Jesus is establishing. It's not a religion. He's calling him by name because he wants to deal with him by name. It's a relationship. And Paul can't miss that point now. Notice, too, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? For all Paul knew, he was persecuting, he was chasing down people who were just following the way. But Jesus says, those are me. This is the early evidence of this whole, whole teaching that's so central to the New Testament that you and I are now the body of Christ. And when someone opposes a Christian, when opposes one of us, he's opposing Jesus. And that gives us courage and identity in the face of it, right? Then there's this other thing that Jesus says to him. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that statement. A goad is really nothing more than a sharp stick. The point is, there's one. The point is it has a point. It's meant to poke the cattle in the butt to get them to move the direction you want them to or whatever they are, whatever the stock animals are. They got electrified ones, kind of cow tasers now that are a little, little more effective, I imagine. But that's all it is. And so Jesus is saying, why are you resisting this? There's something about Paul. What Jesus is saying, you've been resisting me for a while. What are, what are the goads? I think probably two or three things. One of them, I think Paul very likely heard Jesus preach. I mean, he's a Pharisee. He probably was in, his, excuse me, in Jerusalem on those times when Jesus came to Jerusalem and preached and did miracles and cleared the temple. I think he recognized Jesus' voice. But even if he didn't, we know from Acts chapter 8 that Paul was there when Stephen was martyred. He heard the long, well-developed sermon on Stephen's part where he developed all the Old Testament themes that point to Jesus as the Messiah. And, that, and when he says, but the Jews were too stubborn to receive him, the Jews kind of erupted. They take him outside of town. They stone him to death. Paul's there. I'll hold your coats. You guys go ahead and throw the rocks. Okay? And he says, yeah, you go get him. He, he approves of the whole thing, which means he heard the sermon, which means when Stephen prayed, forgive them for they know not what they do, he heard that prayer. And when Stephen, it says that when he died, his face smiled like that of an angel as the Lord was receiving him. Paul witnessed those things, but he resisted them. In the next chapter, he's part of the persecution of the Christians. I think he feels threatened. On top of that is this whole Old Testament. He knew it very, very well. And there, evidence after evidence points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but he had pushed that away. He didn't want it. That was a goad in his life, too. And I think that because one of the things, as soon as he becomes a Christian, the next day he's preaching good sermons about how Jesus is the Messiah. How could that be? Because he'd been hearing that evidence all along. It's like you get to the last page of a mystery novel, and all of a sudden you, all the things are revealed. Oh, my gosh, I didn't. Of course I saw it, but I didn't recognize it. He said that. That's right. And that's why that knife is there. And he's, all of it falls into place for him. And he pushes it away for a while, but this is the point at which he can no longer do that. How about the goads in our lives? My guess is that Jesus has been pushing you and me. Even now we can identify a bit something that Jesus is putting his finger on. He wants to move us in a different direction, change an attitude, something. I bet there's something there. Let's not kick against the goad. Let's not ignore it. Let's not deny it. Let's not turn on some distraction and forget about it. Just accept it, trust him, and follow in the way he is trying to guide us. Right? 
It will be uncomfortable, no doubt about it. Goads are. New, new things are uncomfortable, threatening. But if Jesus is calling us to do it, it's a good thing, right? It might be something we need to do. It might be something we need to stop doing. It might be something we need to say to someone. It might be something we need to quit saying. It might mean inviting a refugee family into our home. That's going to be uncomfortable, but good. It might be going out to them. It might be talking to a neighbor who's uncomfortable to talk to. It might be going to somebody in the corner or across some far border. But if it's Jesus calling you to do it, that's the best thing you can possibly do with your life, right? But now that Paul has this personal encounter, he's been humbled. He realizes some truth. But meeting Jesus is always just the beginning. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to him, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and those in which I'll appear to you. God does not allow Paul time to lick his wounds. We all want to feel sorry for us. Well, my pride's been hurt here. My plans are changed. What does Jesus say? Get up. We have work to do. There is kingdom work to be done, and my ego and your ego and Paul's ego is not something to be babied or curried to or indulged in. Let's get moving. Don't sit there and feel sorry for yourself, right? And notice the kingdom work that he has for Paul. This top-of-his-class Pharisee has been granted an audience with the Savior, but he's not getting an appointment as a CEO or a CFO or to some prestigious institution. He says Jesus appoints him to be a servant. Can we get that next slide? The word here is huperetes. It means under rower. It's one of those bottom-tier guys down here. I'm putting you to row the ship, Paul. I'm pretty sure that wasn't in Paul's five-year plan. That doesn't look like a very comfortable place, does it? Who's on top? The Lord's on top. He's directing the ship. Paul's just, you and I are just rowers, under rowers. Row the boat. Just row the boat. He'll take care of where it's going and how it gets there and the conflict along the way. All right? That's the first thing he's asked him with. And the second thing is to be a witness. A witness simply relates what they've seen and experienced with another person on a given situation, right? Now, the Christian, our Christian community, especially in North America, is full of materials and social media about what we call apologetics. Arguments to those who are atheists who don't believe God exists about the existence of God or about the accuracy of the Bible, all those things. Those are good. I love them. I read a lot of them. But when it comes to reaching a person's heart, this way is the more consistently scriptural way, and that is witnessing. Because if I can share with somebody that Jesus has made me a more generous person, or that Jesus is helping me with my anger, or that Jesus is helping me with my lust, how can you argue against that? Somebody says, well, I don't believe God exists. I see, but he's changing my life. He's changing my marriage. He's changing the way I parent. He's changing the way I handle my money. You can't say anything to that. I know You can say he doesn't exist, but I happen to know him. <laughs> He's involved in my life. It's beautiful, and it's simple, and it comes at the human heart. And it takes it away from the intellectual argument to personal encounter. In verses 17, Jesus says, Delivering you from your people and the Gentiles. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Why does he need delivering? What's that mean? What's that all about? Rescue? Well, clearly, both Jews and Gentiles hauled him off and beat him up and did all sorts of things. Um, but I think there's an interesting thing going on here. Because what has happened to Paul now is this Roman citizen and this Pharisee of Pharisees 
has turned in both those passports, he's got a new citizenship, right? He is now a servant of Jesus. And that's the way he calls himself throughout his letters. And for that reason, he is now free from trying to impress or seek the approval of either the Jews or the Gentiles. He can now declare the whole counsel of God, as he puts it in chapter 20, to, to the good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the difficult and the comforting. He is free because he doesn't have to worry about getting likes on his social media site. Because I can just declare that because I have my security in Christ now. He's taking care of me. My residency, my passport is with him. He's going to take me home when the time is right. I don't need to worry about what you think of this. I'm just going to declare the truth to you. Right? And then right after that, notice what he says. The Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Paul sent to the Gentiles. Hmm. This is a Pharisee who has probably never been in the house of a Gentile in his life. He's probably never eaten a meal with a Gentile. In fact, the Gentiles have been the objects in his sermon of those who are unacceptable, those who are unclean, those who don't do it the right way. And now Paul says, oh yeah, those people, Paul, they're going to become part of the kingdom of God and you're going to take them the gospel. You had to know this rubbed him the wrong way. The racism against the Gentiles is as deep-seated and dangerous as any of it has been in, in, our, in our present day. You'd look at any, any part of the globe, the, the racial and ethnic tensions that we experience, this is just as bad as any of them. And so this would, uh, this, is, this is like, this is too much for Paul almost. Why would Paul, excuse me, why would God send Paul to the Gentiles? First of all, because Paul would not be an expert. He would not be an expert. He would have to depend on God for that. He didn't know how this was going to work. As a teacher, I know many times I've had a lesson that I worked on, that I prayed hard, and, I, and, it, and maybe it went great. I said, fantastic. Next time it comes around, I said, I don't need to worry about this. I got this. And it goes absolutely flat. Same lesson. Why? Because I didn't ask God to be in it. I was depending on the lesson, not the one who gave me the lesson. Right? Paul can't say, oh, I got this. He's going to have to depend on God. And second, God is working on his heart to cut against his prejudices. He's going to have to work on Paul's heart. Paul's heart would have to be changed for him to pull this off. And that's a radical change for somebody in Paul's position. It can only happen at the hands of God himself. Notice here the purposes he has. He says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Notice God has to open our eyes. As he has to open Paul's eyes, he has to open ours. So we are going to stumble around in darkness even though we think we see. And that's the worst kind of blindness, right? when we think we know where we, we're going. Then we're bumping into things, we're in dangerous situations, and we think we're safe. But so that, that we can begin to recognize where the dangers are from God's hand, so that he opens our eyes. So that gives us patience as we work with those who don't believe, because we realize it's got it's to be in God's timing to open those eyes. And then he talks about power. But notice he never talks about your power or my power. It's Satan's power or God's power. The world today feeds us propaganda that says, deep inside, you have the power you need. No, that's not scriptural. Scripturally, it's just a matter of who we serve. Are we serving the enemy or are we serving God? That's all the, that's all the power we have to decide who we're, who we're going to serve here in this situation. right? And when we start to believe that we have the power, we get ourselves into lots of trouble. And what does the power accomplish? Well, by worldly standards, not much. 
It doesn't give you any stock options. It doesn't make you famous or give you fortune. It doesn't give you any prestige in social media. But I think it accomplishes the most important thing. By God's power, we can obtain forgiveness and sanctification. That's the technical word for it. It saves us and it changes us. Changes us to be more like Jesus. That's the solution to everything in this world. If you and I can be more like Jesus and move others to be more like Jesus, we begin to change things in our home. God begins to change things in our neighborhood and across the globe. It's the nature of Jesus to change things for good, right? Now let's look at the last couple verses, uh, 19 through 23. Paul says in 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Guys, this is what it means to walk according to the light. Paul took God at his word, trusted him, and followed it. It's that simple. He took God at his word and trusted him. It was a complete change, meant a loss of his prestige and everything else, but he took God at his word and went with it, right? And I love verse 20, what is it, verse 21 there. He says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. To this day. He is standing in front of Agrippa, and he says, I have the help that comes from God. Do you realize he's standing in chains, having been in jail for two years, and he's headed to Rome with an unpredictable emperor and his decision? But he says, I've had the help of God. Paul doesn't say, where's God now? Paul doesn't say, how could he desert me? He knows he has the power of God right there. It's a beautiful moment. Agrippa's got to think, this guy's got power right now? And Paul knows he does, right? It's a beautiful picture. He stands there in chains, and I have the help of God right now, he says. As we look at Paul, almost as soon as he becomes a Christian, the trouble starts, right? He loses his prestigious position. He becomes an outlier to the Jews. He had to escape from Damascus. He had to escape from Jerusalem. He starts getting hammered in all these cities, left for dead, all these things. And without hesitation, he just keeps going. How can he do that? Honestly, I don't think it's mysterious. He found the treasure hidden in the field that was worth everything. He found the pearl of great price. He said, this is it. That other stuff doesn't matter. It all fades by comparison. I have my Savior. Wherever he leads is a good place. Discomfort doesn't matter, right? He says in Philippians, he says, I count everything as a loss due to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Nothing compares to that, he says. In chapter 20 of Acts, he says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord. That's the pro- Everything is worth that. And so all this other stuff is just window dressing. I have my Savior. Wherever he takes me, it's a good place to go. Right? So I want to ask. We're going we're to have communion here in just a minute. So it's appropriate, I think, to ask now, how about the new year for you and me? How does this apply to that? Well, I think that if there is anything we can learn from this passage, is that if God can intervene in Paul's life and change him so radically, then there is no person or stubborn element of our own lives that God can't change and redeem. Sometimes we hold back and think, he can't do that. Paul says himself in 1 Timothy that God changed him as the chief of sinners to be an example for us to let us know nothing's out of his reach, right? Leading us to trust him with the most difficult challenges, the most difficult circumstances, and the most difficult people. We can come at those with faith, with faith, because God 
is capable and God is willing. See, God disrupted Paul's life. It brought discomfort to him on many levels. It brought confusion to him on many levels. But it brought him to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ as his loving Lord. And he came to treasure that above all else. The very one that his heart needed and the very one that his heart was made for. I have very little doubt that God will disrupt your life and mine in 2018. Maybe it'll be something small. Maybe it'll be something big. But don't kick against the goats. Let's not kick against the goats. Let's pay attention. Let's not resist. Trust Jesus through it. If he knocks you off your horse, if he knocks me off my my horse, we need to stand up and say, okay, where to, Lord? Don't fight it. No licking our wounds. Let him open up our eyes and expose the ways that we have been blind. Obey the vision he gives. Follow the light he provides. Let him overcome our prejudices and our stubbornness. 2018 will most likely be very different than you expect and than I expect. The enemy is prowling and we are weak. But God steps in at the right time and in the right way. None of it's too hard for him. And the good he has for us is far harder than we might think or than we might want, but far better and totally worth it. And the way we can know that is because we learned it on the road to Damascus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this lesson is for us. This truth is for us. You are for us as our Savior. We need saving. We need sanctifying. We need change. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, I pray that we would remember what you have done for us and what that means for us in the present and that we would experience your help no matter what our circumstances are or no matter what our circumstances come to be in 2018. Thank you for passages like this. Help us to embrace the truth that's here in the ways that we need to because you are more than communicative with us. Help us not to resist that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.